on this episode of Rebel Spirit Radio. There's something about it and just kind of leaning back against a tree. And I think that even though we cannot perceive what's happening underground, we have a sense of it. We have a sense of the deep roots of that tree going into the soil. That to me is just a very healing metaphor. And the branches of the tree reaching up and into the sun and producing, you know, and photosynthesis occurring, producing the sugars, giving base to everything that we need to be sustained. So in some way, it's like the great mother. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this week's episode, author Judith Polich joins me to discuss her book, Why Can't We Be More Like Trees? The Ancient Masters of Cooperation, Kindness, and Healing. Among other topics, Judith discusses the importance of recapturing the magic of seeing the world through an unconditioned lens and the many virtues that trees teach, including learning how to be together in community. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Judith Polich is a former lawyer, environmentalist, and wetlands advocate. She holds a Master of Science degree in Environmental Studies and Environmental Education from the University of Wisconsin. She is the author of a climate change column for the Albuquerque Journal and a book, Return of the Children of Light. She joins me today to discuss her latest book, Why Can't We Be More Like Trees? Judith, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Well, thank you for having me, Nick. I'm happy to be here. Well, I am glad that you are here I really enjoyed your book, and it is right up my alley. I always like to focus on, as much as possible, humanity's relationship to the earth in the podcast. I don't think I do enough podcast episodes about that, so I'm very happy that you're joining me today. So let me ask you, this is, I think, kind of the obvious question. The title of the book's a question, Why Can't We Be More Like Trees?, and I thought a really good place to start is, well, what does that mean? What are trees like? Aren't they just like these big towering things that just grow and shed and grow again? Well, you know, it's obviously entitled, the book is entitled, Why Can't We Be Like Trees? To be a bit provocative, to start making us think a little differently, right? And of course, we think about trees as these tall things that, We like to walk among and all of that, but, and they're beautiful and they give us so much, but there's a whole lot more to the story of trees as we've recently been finding with uh, the new research that's been done using very advanced technologies to determine what happens below the ground of a tree. And some of that research is absolutely fascinating. Uh, It turns out that trees are very cooperative. They share resources. They work symbiotically with the fungal kingdom, uh, both for transfer of food to the fungi, but all, but minerals and water and um, in some cases antibiotic-like things uh, from the fungi to the trees. Uh, It's a really interactive community. And what trees really demonstrate to what I 
took out of this new research is that, wow, there's this extensive, interactive, holistic community that is occurring in a mature force that we knew very little about. Yeah. And I think we'll be getting into some of the details of that as we move forward. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was you begin the book by describing when you were very young, going out into a, a woods behind your house. And there was, I think, a giant oak tree that you seem to have a relationship with. At one point you said, it's just my place. But then you went back later and you wrote that the magic was gone. And you noted that you had lost the ability to see with an unconditioned lens. So I was wondering if you could maybe discuss that a little bit, because I would also like to share one of my experiences with trees. But yeah, what more can you say about this? Well, when I was a child, I grew up on a dairy farm in northern Wisconsin, and it was a really there weren't a lot of other kids around. And so I just spent a lot of time by myself and I'd wander into the woodland, the wood, the woodland near the farm. And there was what to a small child seemed like a giant oak tree and all the magic that seemed to be alive in nature as it often is for young children. Um, so it was just a great place to hang out with me and my tree friends and listen to the frogs and pick berries and just feel very comforted and calm and connected. When I got older and my mind became, became more conditioned, as happens when we enter into, into school and conventional education, a lot of that magic was lost. So when I was old, when I was a bit older and would go back, it just didn't have the same, it was still a pretty woodland. It just didn't have, I just didn't have the same connection. I'd lost that. And I think that's very common experience. And of course, many of us are working very hard to reclaim that uh, original understanding. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about this conditioned lens, because I think that's a big part of the work and it's phrased in different ways. And one of the ways you discuss this is in terms of a paradigm and that it seems like when we are educated into a very specific Western paradigm mm -hmm. and it seems like that's what conditioned you and, you know, we need to move out of that paradigm so to understand what this new paradigm is, maybe it's helpful to take a moment to talk about what the current paradigm is and how it conditions us. Yeah, one of the things I talk about is that we have, many of us, become disillusioned, disconnected, and diseased, in other words. And a lot of that is the sense of separation that is built into our cognitive thinking process, where it's sort of a them, us, and where, and our ego based consciousness, which, you know, there's the subject and there's the object. And that's a useful way of thinking, but it's not the only way. And it needs to be balanced with, I believe, a more holistic view, recognizing that we're part of something larger. And yeah, use these 
wonderful cognitive skills that we have developed over time when it's appropriate, but it's not a worldview. Yeah. And it seems to me, though, that part of this conditioned lens is also seeing trees as just material, potential material to build stuff. That's right. We have developed a sense of viewing everything outside of ourselves as outside of humans as a commodity that's just there for our use. And so, you know, there is this need to move away from that because you spend quite a bit, I think you have an entire chapter on the current ecological crises that we are facing. And I always, right. we always have to use the plural and that's why we have to move beyond where we are. How do you think, because I know you've got a background in environmental education and I'm curious about this. How do you think we can get people to, how can we educate people? along these lines? Well, one of the, one very important thing is just get people out in nature mm. and because nature kind of does it for us. If we can just spend more time in the out of doors in calm and quiet natural spaces, something happens. First of all, we start letting go of the stresses of our daily existence and most people's lives are very stressed and then there's there are deeper levels of which in ways that nature can bring us back into balance. We know that just by the smells <laughs> of nature and what we breathe in that chemically that there are healing components to that. And but I think it's there's something else that happens that is quite important. And the more time we spend in nature and just focused on what's around us, we drop the, we drop what's called the executive function of our mind. That's a part of our mind that's always thinking and going here and there and planning and whatnot. And that softens. And as that softens, another part of our mind comes forward, which is called the default mold. And basically that part of our mind is more holistic, naturally more holistic. So we can begin to see and perceive things in an entirely different manner. Uh, I think most of us have experiences. They've experienced some of the, what you call magic that can occur in nature, where suddenly we're just feeling more connected with everything. So that's one way. Okay. Yeah. I am currently teaching a uh, class on, uh, Ecology, Economy, and Christ is the title of the class. I took it over for someone who left like two weeks before the semester began. Mm -hmm. And I was told, well, you can do this however you want. But so there's not a lot of Christ in there. There is some theology. But one of the things that I'm having students do is find a Gaia place. And I kind of stole that from Stephen Harding. And it's interesting because I want them to connect. And what's interesting is how many of them found a Gaia place near a tree. Mm -hmm. And it just seems like there's something that draws us to trees. Absolutely. I mean, and it doesn't have to be a big giant tree. I mean, when I was a young person, my big oak tree was really a pretty small oak tree. Now it's a pretty big oak tree, mm -hmm. uh, but there's something about it and just kind of leaning back against a tree. And I think that even though we cannot perceive what's happening underground, 
uh, we have a sense of it. We have a mm -hmm. sense of the deep roots of that tree going into the soil. That to me is just a very healing metaphor. Mm -hmm. And the branches of the tree reaching up and uh, into the sun and producing, you know, and photosynthesis occurring, producing the sugars, giving base to all, everything that we need to be sustained. So in some way, it's like the great mother. <laughs> mm, yeah. Well, and trees appear in myth and religion all the time. And you have a chapter that discusses some of that. So one that comes to mind pretty quickly is the tree of life. Right. And then there's also in some of the shamanic cultures, this idea of the world tree. Um, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's penetrated throughout mythology. Every culture, almost every civilization has some, had some semblance of the metaphor of the tree as being generative and connected with something deeply spiritual. Yeah. You know, the, what I wanted to share is I engaged in a, an experiment for about 10 years. And this is when I lived in Southern California, I was in Pasadena and there was a Canyon very close by that I decided I'm going to hike this Canyon every week if I can. And, mm -hmm. you know, there are a lot of hiking trails, but I'm like, no, I'm going to stick with this one because I wanted to get to know a place. Mm -hmm. And during that practice, there was one tree that I decided it was, I wanted to develop a relationship with that tree. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because last year there were these massive floods, rains in California. And so I didn't get to go see my tree. And when I finally made it there, I remember touching the tree and I just started sobbing because it was like a friend. And it seems to me I'm using that, you know, my personal experience, but it seems like we all kind of need to do that. We need to develop these kind of emotional relationships with the trees and the land. It is emotional. And because it's connecting, I think, to something deep within us, which is maybe telling us, hey, we've never been separated. We may live our lives and feel that we're separate from others, from all of nature. But when we get close to when you allow yourself to open in that way and to feel whatever comes through, the message is we're really all one. We are connected. We're yeah. not separate. Yeah, I miss my tree. <laughs> I miss my tree. <laughs> I have to find another one. But let's look at, let's go a little bit more in depth about the things that trees can teach us. And so I thought that some of the science is interesting and some of it I've seen headlines, but I'm also looking for these things. So let's start with communication. And I think that also connects to interconnection, perhaps. Uh, but the phrase that I've heard or seen in headlines is the world, what is it? The world wood web? Worldwide. Wood Wide web. web. Yes, that's it. That's Susan it. Simone, the, the forest ecologist who first began to do this research to show us this interconnection between the fungal community and the trees 
plants of the forest and it really grasslands, everything is interconnected uh, with the network of the little fibers that come off of the fungi. Well, there's a lot going on there. There's information being passed back and forth from the tree roots through the fungi to other trees. And so that's a level of communication that has been documented. And the form that communication takes, obviously, is very different than communication happens for us. But there's an exchange. There's an exchange of not just information. There's an exchange of food. The sugars from the tree are feeding the fungi. The fungi are giving back what minerals and the necessary things that trees may need, nitrogen, things like that, water. There's information that is exchanged among different parts of the tree network in terms of necessary defenses that they need to develop in case of some kind of predatory invasion or something. So there's a lot going on, and there's a lot of different types of communications that happens between systems underground that we weren't aware of. That's one level of communication that happens with trees. There are many others, but just within those interactive below ground networks. I mean, we didn't know what was going on in the soil because of course we couldn't see it. We might be able to see a few worms and, you know, things like that, but everything was happening at a much smaller level than we could Um, perceive until these other technologies were used to take a look at what's going down, what's happening below the ground. Yeah. And the trees communicate not just with the fungi, but they communicate with each other. Isn't that correct? They communicate with each other. That's right. And they do that through, among other ways, but probably primarily above ground through sense. They emit sense, just like when you walk into uh, pine forests, you can smell the piney feel of the trees. Those are terpines. They're chemical, chemically composed. And they have a number of functions and they can change. They can emit different chemical signals that other trees can pick up. And those may tell them that there's a certain threat. And so that allows other trees to prepare for it by figuring out how to deal with whatever that predator might be. It also uh, seems, and this is something you discuss in the book, that that trees have a sense of care because you describe how a tree that is dying may kind of, I don't know if I'm using the correct language here, but sort of dump their nutrient load so another tree can pick that up. That's right. They will definitely do that. And then it, whether it's dispersed throughout the network or through specific trees, uh, there's also even trees that aren't dying where are going to share. There's it's well documented that they will share their sugars from photosynthesis with other trees so that there's more of a balance in terms of everybody's taken care of what's called mother trees, which is a term that Susan Simone came up with, uh, larger, older trees in a forest, actually send out food in the form of that they've generated through photosynthesis to their offspring. And so those, we use terms, when we think of 
cooperation, kindness, sharing, caring for others in our way of looking at things. It doesn't necessarily translate directly to what trees are doing, but it certainly is an interesting parallel. Mm. Well, it makes me wonder that if a tree is dying and they share their nutrients with another tree, on some level, it seems like the tree is cognizant of its upcoming demise. Well, cognizance is a very interesting concept. And I talk at, at various times in my book about things like, does this mean they have cognition? Does this mean they have intelligence? Does this mean there's consciousness? And again, looking at it from our lens, which is based on our means of perception, it's an interesting question because it's not cognizance like we might think of cognizance because obviously we have a brain and a spinal cord and they don't, right? And But there's something going on there that indicates what I think of as a type of learning of intelligence, but I hesitate at using the word intelligence. So I use the word smarts. There's something going on there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the phrase that came to my mind is just different ways of knowing. Different ways of knowing. Yeah. I think that there's a lot that is happening within the plant community that we were clueless about. And some of their ways of gleaning information, exchanging information, and learning seem very alien to us as almost like they're other. But that doesn't mean that something isn't going on there, something that is fascinating and that we need to pay attention to. Yeah, well, even the suggestion that plants or trees may have some kind of consciousness is really radically against that conditioned paradigm that we were all kind of educated within. Absolutely. I mean, there are plant neurobiologists who are doing some really interesting research, but, you know, they're considered uh, fairly non-traditional within their fields, even though the research is just fascinating. And it's, you know, we're dealing with, as you said earlier, paradigm shifts. And it certainly is a big paradigm shift overall to begin to think about the possibility that everything might be alive, interconnected, and more conscious, or conscious in different ways, but have an interactive understand, have an interactive type of, I can't use anything else but consciousness. We're just, we, it kind of pushes a lot of boundaries, certainly the yeah. conventional boundaries. Yeah, and they need to be pushed. And, <laughs> you know, I think it's fascinating because once we start thinking about this possibility, it opens up so much, you know, because you wrote that plants can learn. Oh, yeah, it's well documented. Gagliano and her research documenting the learning in plants. You bet. They, you know, these are, <laughs> we're just not used to thinking that way, but they learn and the most expedient way within their system. So they don't waste energy. Um, so there's some thing that's happening. Some, they can retain memory for months. And I never thought that was possible. But I mean, that's the thing that some of this 
research that I talk about in my book that has come out in recent years is just mind boggling. It is. And, you know, when I teach uh, introduction to philosophy, I always include things like this. You know, I, I'm kind of a rebel that way. But one of the things that I always tell my students is that even though there is some evidence that plants feel and have some kind of awareness, that I'm just glad that I can't hear my broccoli scream. Right. Um, <laughs> but you wrote some this sentence and I was trying to find the exact sentence and I don't see it in my notes here, but it was essentially you noted that plants can tell when something is eating them. Right. I mean, there's been considerable research. It's most of it in Europe about the sensitivity to plants to I guess we use the word pain because we think of pain in terms of what we feel in our bodies. And this is a little controversial because there is a reaction within the plant, but whether it is actually feeling pain, that's something that scientists debate about. But there is, they feel something. Uh, there is a something that is documented that occurs when you cut off a branch, when you and I'm not talking about you're biting into your broccoli because that's already dead. I'm talking about, <laughs> I'm talking about something that's still rooted in the ground. There's yeah. a sensation. There's something that is documented that occurs. Does that mean they're sentient? Does that mean they feel pain? I don't know. Okay. I mean, obviously, you know, as people who are vegetarians, obviously that could be a scary thought. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm so glad I can't hear my broccoli scream because that's <laughs> just, oh my gosh. Yeah, no, that's, but that sentence is going to haunt me. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> well, you know, there was, you don't discuss anything like this in the book, but it still is pertinent, I think. And I am curious, I would wager that someone has done some kind of experiment along these lines, but I remember a radio interview I listened to probably about 12 years ago. And there was a scientist that had set up, I don't even know what to call it. It was at the Museum of Art and Design in Los Angeles. I think it's the Otis Museum of Art and Design. But she had all these plants set up and she had sensors connected to the plants. Mm -hmm. And I think other people have done this kind of uh, experiment but the sensors were then, you know, they were connected to the plants, but they were also set up so that the signal would go through a speaker. Mm -hmm. So you could actually hear the sounds of the plants. And what I found so fascinating is this, and this is along the lines of the plant consciousness in a sense, is that she said that if you were to go up to the plant with a pair of scissors mm -hmm. with the intention of cutting it, that would register. Mm -hmm. But she also noticed, she goes, but if you go up to the plant with the scissors, but you have no intention of cutting it, you don't get the same effect. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah. So it almost seemed like the plant was aware of the human's intention. That's interesting. You know, plants have a lot of um, senses that we don't have. So they have different modalities in terms of bringing information into their systems. And I think that hasn't been explored maybe as much as it could be, but it doesn't entirely surprise me though, 
I don't know what to make of that, frankly. Yeah. Well, and she was, it was interesting because I don't know that she knew what to make of it. And the interviewer asked her, why are you doing this in an art museum? Mm. You know, why aren't you doing this in the lab? And she's like, no one will let me do it in a lab. Right. That she had to do it at, at an art museum. Right. I mean, obviously we know that science is extremely structured and very specific about how new information permeates through scientific understanding. There's a lot of reviews, a lot of debate. And before something is accepted as scientifically valid, I mean, that is the scientific system. And I think that I think it's a valid system, but there's enough research that has been documented and proven again and again that something's going on within the plant community that we didn't quite understand that I feel we're making progress in deepening our understanding. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm just curious if anyone has thought about, you know, doing a similar experiment with trees in a forest, you know hooking up sensors to those leaves. I mean, I understand the necessity of going underground to see what's happening there, uh, but it would be curious to see if there was any other kind of communication above ground. Yeah. I'm not sure. Um, Basically, I think that the whole idea of plant sensitivity, plant neurobiology is pretty underfunded. And so that is part of the problem that we're not focusing on it as significantly as might. Yeah. Oh, I think because many people still see trees as just wood, (laughs) you know, or, you know, lumber. (laughs) Right. So I'm also interested to go back to something that you had mentioned because this is really important. And it's another one of those phrases that you see in headlines. So people may be a little bit familiar with it, but it's the healing quality of Mm -hmm. trees and how we can heal by being in nature. And the phrase that I think, or the term that a lot of people may be familiar with is the idea of forest bathing. Absolutely. That wonderful Japanese practice of spending time just walking in nature and the then the research that was done and how that actually changes things within the human body the more time we spend in nature and how our stress levels go down our cortisone level goes down and we also are there's an increase in what are called killer cells. In other words, cancer producing cells and whatnot, because we're breathing in the, as it turns out, the smells of the forest are having a physical effect uh, on our immune system. So there's lots of, as I said previously, lots of layers to this, but we can improve our health, um, not just lower our stress levels, but many levels of our health, strengthen our immune systems by spending more time in nature. Yeah. My canyon helped me a lot because I would go there when I was also working on my dissertation, which was probably one of the most stressful things I've ever done in my life. But just spending that four hours or so every week at that canyon just helped keep me sane, I think. But what about people who don't live near a forest or a canyon? 
Well, and increasingly, more and more people don't spend time in nature. Um, it doesn't have to be a forest or a canyon, of course. It can be a walk in the park in an urban area. And if nature, little pieces of nature are built into more urban areas, it's much healthier. There are a lot, there's lots of studies that have been done about the health benefits of having trees in urban neighborhoods and a little bit of nature here and there. So it doesn't have to, you don't have to go up, way up in the mountains, get away from everybody. You can have the the benefits of nature just in your backyard or in a neighborhood park. There are even studies that have been done where people who are recovering from surgeries and whatnot, if they can look out the window of a hospital into a natural setting, they actually heal faster. Yeah, I found that fascinating. You had mentioned that in the book, and I think it was someone looked at people who had abdominal surgery and that they healed faster if they at least had a view of a tree. Right. <laughs> and that's amazing. But I also wanted to know, well, why just ab- abdominal surgery patients? I don't know. Oh, I don't know. I think it was just the doctor who did it. Yeah. I think, yeah, you know, I don't think it's just a particular type of illness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is healing. And I know that it addresses a lot of other issues. There's an organization that I'm familiar with in the Los Angeles area called Tree People. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they go into these very urban neighborhoods, uh, usually minority neighborhoods that tend to have a lack of trees and they're going in and they're planting trees. Right. And that transforms the whole neighborhood, transforms interactions within a neighborhood as well. Yeah. So it seems like what we need to do is plant more trees. <laughs> One level. That's part of it. That's yeah. for sure. There are tree planting initiatives all over the world, as we know. Yeah. But that alone is not going to get us out of the climate crisis. It's much deeper than that. Yeah. Do we plant trees at a greater level than we, what we cut them down? That, okay, so historically, there used to be about 3 trillion trees on the planet. There's about 1 trillion now. Uh, Researchers indicate that we have room to plant another trillion. We're losing trees also rapidly from forest fires and things like that, not just commercial use. Trees take a long time to grow. I mean, so it's, you know, it's not like you're going to get immediate carbon sequestering benefit if you plant a little tree it's going to be 20 years before there's a significant benefit so it's a big part of the climate solution it's not the only thing that we can do but what's interesting is that countries around the world have massive tree planting efforts i mean some countries they'll plant a million in a few days you know they just get everybody engaged and it's a wonderful thing and it takes people into nature but it's a long slow process for it to have an effect on concentrating carbon. Yeah. What else can we learn from trees? Um, Yeah. (laughs) I'm just going to leave it like that. What else can we learn from trees? Because we've talked about caring and I think they have a sense of kindness, perhaps. I think you mentioned that in the book. Well, certainly they're cooperative in terms of their, I think trees a force, it's a community, and it can teach us some things about learning how to be together in community with a community of life, because 
it isn't just trees helping other trees. They're supporting a whole ecosystem and helping that ecosystem work in a more balanced way. It's kind of endless what we can learn from trees, frankly. And yeah. I think part of what we need to remember is that we wouldn't be here without trees, that without trees and plant life, this planet would look like the moon. There wouldn't have there wouldn't be any soil that would have been created. We wouldn't have developed an atmosphere. We wouldn't have a place that is rich in oxygen. We wouldn't have anything to eat because everything on this planet comes from the plant community, all forms of sustenance for us, for all other animals, and for even the fungal community. So <laughs> they're kind of like the foundation of life on this planet. And it's so easy for us to forget that and to become self-focused in terms of our immediate needs and interests and forget how the whole complex ecosystem that we're a part of works. Yeah. Well, it brings to mind something that you discussed early on in the book, you made the observation that we can no longer think of trees as an individual plant. That's right. Because they're truly a community. And I think that's the best way to think of them, a community that we see on top of the ground, but that we have to have an understanding that goes deeper, deeper into the earth and the whole ecosystem, much of the ecosystem is below the ground. Yeah. Well, and this is... I like that idea for a number of reasons. One of the things that I have my students doing, you know, and again, this is at a Jesuit university and I have them focusing on two things. One is their home. And then the other is this Gaia place. And one of the questions that I asked them to kind of think about in both was, well, who's your neighbor? Mm -hmm. And I think that when you look at a tree, it's interesting because I was trying to get them to recognize well, there are all these little insects going around. You know, if you dig a little bit, you'll find worms or you know grubs or something. You've got the squirrels living in the trees. You've got birds living in the trees. And all of them share and contribute to the flourishing of each other. That's right. That's right. So it's interactive, interconnected, and they're all part of a larger whole. Uh, I think that's a basic lesson that is important to all of us. And so I like to think of trees as an important archetype, help us formulate our thinking. Yeah. Yeah. But yet so many of us don't have the time to go out and hike a canyon every week or even see trees. I think we appreciate them. It's interesting being back in Colorado because I'd been in exile for like 19 years uh, in California and you don't have really a lot of trees that drop their leaves. Right. Um, so it's really interesting to be back to see that. And I think some people will notice that. I just wonder collectively this shift. Do you think it's just starting with each individual and rippling out? Or do we have to go into the education system itself? Well, Good question. <laughs> two different questions, I yeah. think. How does a shift of consciousness occur? Mm -hmm. Many of us think it might be a collective phenomenon rather than just an individual phenomenon. But of course, we have to go within. Mm -hmm. We have to look at 
our own beliefs and behaviors. But I think it's something that also happens within the larger scope. So. Okay. As consciousness expands, it doesn't just happen within the individual. I think it happens within the larger whole, basically. Yeah. 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 And maybe it was a little bit unfair to ask the question the way I did, because I think I agree on, if I understand correctly, it is that if we think in terms of just the individual, it has to be both. It has to be the individual and the collective right? and they work together. Um, And it's not just the collective humanity, but the collective of everything um, that we have to kind of get at. I'm curious. I wanted to ask you this. You went through a couple of terms in the book that are a little bit popular. So for example, one was an integral ecology. Mm -hmm. You also refer to ecocentrism. Right. Integral ecology, I believe, came from Pope Francis in one of his directives in term on climate change, the first one. And it's a beautiful term. I mean, we're talking about interaction with the all with all of life and coming from, in that sense, religious point of view, re-looking at the original creation stories and reinterpreting them within a more ecological sense. The other concept was ecocentricism was that the one yeah yeah okay obviously we're anthropocentric we Mm. see everything from our lens our means of perception ecocentricism which is a concept of having the whole of life at the center of our understanding it's easier said than done obviously But it's sort of a guidance, I think, in terms of beginning to look at things differently. And I think that early cultures, cultures that are indigenous cultures, cultures that existed before we, before our brains shifted through kind of agricultural systems we put into place, hunter-gatherers, they had a different perspective of the world, and their perspective was more centered on a deeper understanding of the interconnection of life. And maybe they were more ecocentric in that way. They were certainly animistic. Everything had a sense of being alive and interactive. We've lost a lot of, much of that, other than in some traditional cultures, of course, still hold those beliefs and understandings, but most of us have become very disconnected from that way of thinking. And it may be the way back. It may be the way back to the garden. Yeah. Yeah. One of the themes that keeps coming up in the podcast with the variety of guests is this idea that we have to remember we have to remember who we are. And I always like to think of that in the sense of not only do we have to remember where we came from and this idea of that we used to see ourselves as part of nature. Um, okay. So nature is alive, you know, with the animistic ideas. Um, but part of this conditioning that you talked about is that we are separate that we are divorced from nature. And so I always see remembering as remembering <laughs> that we have to take it back to that. 
just because we're conditioned to certain viewpoints and have these cognitive biases that have developed over time doesn't mean it's accurate, doesn't mean it can't be changed. I mean, if anything, we know that we know about the plasticity within our own brains. We can learn new things. We learn new things all the time. We can learn new ways of perceiving. And in many ways, what we're talking about is relooking at some of the old ways and integrating a deeper sense of wholeness and understanding of the validity of all life and the interconnection of all life into our everyday thinking. We can do both. And it isn't that we have to give up one for the other. Both are necessary skill sets. Yeah. I just find it very difficult to, you know, when we're in this sort of paradigm, it's like the fish in water that doesn't know it's in water. Right, uh, right. And sometimes, you know, I see humanity as being like that. We exist within this paradigm, but we don't actually see how that paradigm has conditioned us. I think that a lot of us have spiritual practices, and I think that helps us mm-hmm. to step out of our external reality and into a deeper inner reality. And I'm not saying the spiritual practice in itself is necessary, but I think it's a helpful tool Hmm. to hold on to a sense of wholeness as we walk in the world. Yeah. Well, it seems to me, I mean, and this is just my opinion and coming from my own experiences, but when I connect to the natural world and feel that sense of belonging and wholeness, that is spiritual to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, it was certainly my first um, deep spiritual connection. It is for many of us. And it's one we can keep returning to again and again. And in my way of thinking, as it has evolved over time, there's really no great separation between getting there through nature or getting there through an esoteric or spiritual practice. It's all bringing us back to a whole. And it's but it is it does have to be approached individually. You have to put some attention into it, yeah, for it to happen, yeah, well, going back to this ecocentrism, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you because you wrote in the book that you're not comfortable with that term. I don't know how to apply it. I mean, what does it mean when I grow grocery shopping? what is it what does it mean? I think. I think that I like better the more indigenous perspective of relation. If we're going to harvest something, if we're going to hunt something, we do it out of a deep respect for the interconnection of all life and hold that as our value because obviously we have to eat and we don't photosynthesize. We have to go out and hunt and gather in whatever way we can. So it's a question if we do this unconsciously without regard to the rest of life or if we do it respectfully. Uh, So that is, I think, a better way for me personally to handle that. Yeah. Well, and this is something that is one of my abiding interests is this idea that nature can teach us, that nature and not just teach us on a material level, but can teach us morality in a sense. And the morality that I see is always in the virtues. 
I mean, part of what my book is about is looking at old narratives, old stories we tell about ourselves that no longer work, that no longer have survival value, and looking at what some of the new emerging narratives are. And those are the narratives that guide us and help us how to be in this time of transition, in this time when our planet is so threatened by our thoughtless interaction with it. So we obviously need something new, some deeper sense. And we maybe don't have to look a whole lot further than nature itself as it as we deepen and, and the and science, both science and religion are leading us to these new connections and understandings, which is I think what I find so powerful and so helpful. Yeah. Well, and it's what I see is the lessons that we can learn from trees and what comes out is, you know, and we've already mentioned some of these, but, you know, kindness, uh, connection, connection, care, intelligence, sure. so, yes. uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that you brought up something that's really important is to develop these senses of respect and gratitude. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's this dichotomy between the part of us that is so self-centered and ego-based and the part of us that can expand beyond this and take in a larger understanding of our community and where our life comes from. So it's pretty hard not to have a sense of gratitude for all of yeah. that given here. Yeah. Well, and it seems also that if we think about trees and other plants as being alive and having an intelligence that when I sit down to eat my broccoli, that I show that gratitude and respect and right. kind of give thanks to it. Exactly. I think that is part of how we hold the interconnection uh, is by recognizing that we're part of this larger whole and that we're grateful for all of the contributing parts. Yeah. Now you discussed, and this is kind of along the lines of an ethic in a sense. And, you know, again, I'm huge on environmental virtue ethics. That's why I'm always like identifying these. But you also noted a another possibility, which is developing a kind of contractual relationship. Right. I mean, maybe that comes from my legal background. It seems that's the part that we're missing. We're really good at taking. We're not so good at giving. And so if we look at the climate crisis that we have created here it, i one metaphorically a way to look at how we get out of it is by having a con new contractual understanding that we have to give back to nature not just take that we are that the garden of eden that we were given requires that we care for that garden that we protect that garden so that means yes planting lots of trees trillions, a trillion trees. It means also setting aside 30% of our waters, 30% of our land base as protected. That's the consideration, part of the consideration of this contract, this new contract we can have with the natural world so that we can find our way out of this climate crisis. And uh, so for me, the contract analogy works. Um, and um, 
if we were to take those steps, we could help bring the planet back into balance. And trees are, of course, an essential, trees and plants are essential. Part. I mean, that's what we're working with. We have to work with them as allies in terms of transforming and balance, rebalancing our world, rewilding our world, all of these things. Yeah, it's a rewilding, but also returning magic to the world yeah. in a sense, I think. So I do have a couple more questions for you, but one is you begin the book with your magic oak tree in the woods behind your house. And that pretty early on in your college career, you went back and the magic was gone. And I'm curious, have you ever gone back? Has the magic returned for you? Into that tree and that forest. Uh, I haven't been there in a long time, but it's all kind of overgrown now. The tree is pretty darn big, but the magic did come back to me when I was in college and when I was a part of the early ecological movement. And suddenly there was this sense in the late, in the early seventies that, you know, for those of us who were immersed in uh, the early ecological movement, everything was once again alive and interactive. Um, So I was able to recapture it with the community of like-minded people in, in those, in the early seventies, it did come back. Yeah. Well, and it seems like it kind of, died away for a little bit but now it's roaring back and i think it's a lot roaring. of it's i think a lot of it's out of necessity so that's right it's yeah. of necessity and it's also i think there's something deeper going on as overall consciousness is transforming it may not seem that way if we're just reading the news and hearing the horrible things that are happening everywhere but i think at an individual level People are reaching deeper into themselves and finding a reclaiming their sense of wholeness and then extending that out into the larger world. Yeah, I find that one of the things that a lot of people struggle with, and I struggle with this as well, is the situation seems so overwhelming. You know, and it's not just climate change. I mean, this is why I always refer to it actually as the ecological crises. Because it's in the plural, you know, some scientists say that we're in the sixth mass extinction and it can seem overwhelming to the individual as if there's very little that the individual can do. So what would you say? And you may have already given me this answer, um, but I'm going to ask you, what would you say to individuals who feel a little bit overwhelmed? Um, it's okay to feel overwhelmed. We're all overwhelmed at times, but what we can't do is fall back into despair and then not act because no one's going to transform this crisis but us. It's going to be our actions that are going to bring things back into a more livable plane of existence than maybe where we're headed. That's part of the reason I write the column I do called Cutting Your Carbon Footprint because it gives people, homeowners, individuals, things that they can do to track to tackle the climate change, things that they ways things that they can do in their lives, in their households that will make a big difference. Ultimately, there's so many of us on the planet, every individual's action, especially those of us who live in the parts of the world that are responsible for a lot of uh, carbon that gets emitted in the air. Everything we do that everything we do that can cut little things in our lives 
and big things, you know, what we drive, how we heat our homes, all of those kind of things are critically important. So there's no reason to feel despair. We can feel really concerned, but take that concern and do something with it. Yeah, I think that what kind of, I'm trying to figure out how I want to say this. I think part of the overwhelm is that I agree with everything you just said, and I have tried for as long as I could to be as environmentally friendly as I could, but the overwhelm comes from the fact that when we look at what's producing all of the carbon, mm-hmm. um, it's not necessarily individual households, but major corporations and the military and things like that. And that's why it feels a little bit overwhelming because it's like, well, my individual actions, while they are important in order to stop this, I have to stop the machine. <laughs> Both, are important. Both are yeah. important. The two big, two of the biggest sources are, the cars that we drive and the fuel that comes out of those cars. So the faster we can convert to hybrids and electric cars, that's critically important. Second thing is the heat that is used to generate our homes. So if you can get solar on your roof, that's a really big deal. If you can't work to get the utility companies in your state to begin to use more and more non-fossil fuels, and as they are here in this part of the country. And those are two huge things that are going to help us to keep climate change at a sustainable level. So it does come down to individual. Yes, it comes down to policies in terms of corporations. You know, we're the consumer. Corporations wouldn't exist without us. So you can bring about corporate change by your buying habits. Yeah. Well, I always... uh try to remind myself of something that Thoreau wrote, which was let your life be a friction to the machine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I think I know the answer to this question, but I often like to ask my guests when we're discussing our environmental situation, do you have hope? I do. I have to have hope. I mean, I, you know, like I get up in the morning and I do my practice and then I read the paper. (laughs) (laughs) And so the world enters in pretty quickly. And then I have to balance within myself the reality of what's happening out there and what I feel we can do to, I want to use a trite phrase, but it is maybe trite, hold the light and bring that light into a larger, fuller sense through our actions and activities and how we might influence others. I have to have hope for the future because I love this planet. I love its life forms. I love everything about it. So I have to have hope. For me, it's not a choice. Right. All right. Very good. Yeah, I agree. I think we have to have hope, but I think we also need all these other virtues that the trees can teach us, you know, the gratitude and respect and the kindness and the intelligence. I know that we are pretty much out of time here, but let me ask you a couple of questions. One is, what are you working on next? What's coming up for you? Well, it's kind of, I'm exploring the idea of resilience. I mean, a lot of people are, it's a huge word right now, right? And resilience from the perspective of how we hold on to hope, how we hold on to 
continuing to do service in increasingly challenging and chaotic world. And so that's one theme I'm exploring. I'm also through my column, which is an ongoing look at things that are evolving in climate change research, keeping my foot in basically, and trying to take some what sometimes are complex ideas and put them in a more simplified form so that people can understand what does this mean for me and what does it mean in terms of my own life, what policies are important to support. Ultimately, it's a complex system that we interact with to bring about the kind of policy changes that are needed. There's the individual level and there's how we impact larger changes. So keeping my hand in those kind of things pretty much is how I see my way forward. Okay. Well, that's interesting. The idea of resilience and um, something that is just getting onto my radar, I think. I'm, but I think it's also important. All of this is incredibly important. The work you're doing is important. And I think that bringing it to a larger audience is also incredibly important. You know, I always felt like that's what I do as a teacher is I have to take these kind of complex ideas and translate them. Exactly. Um, and your book is very accessible and it's a really good read. And I think that anyone who loves trees and who doesn't love a good tree <laughs> would enjoy it. So let me ask you, is there a place where people can go to find out more about you and your work? Yeah, I have a website and the website is the same name as my column. It's cuttingyourcarbonfootprint.com. No spaces between the letters, cuttingyourcarbonfootprint.com. On the website, there's information about this book, another book that I wrote, other writings, and um, a lot of my columns um, on climate change, which... Uh, have been in the Southwest papers, the Albuquerque Journal and other papers here. And they're readily available to people without a subscription that way. And so it's cuttingyourcarbonfootprint.com. No spaces. (laughs) Okay. Well, I will put a link for that in the show notes in the video description. I will also put links for your book and the book is out now, right? Right. It came out about a week ago. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. Well, congratulations so on that. From any source, they can order it from their favorite bookstore. They can go online if they wish to. Yeah. Yeah. I usually put in two links. I put in one for the publisher and mm-hmm. then the other is I tend to use bookshop.org um, sure. because Jeff Bezos is rich enough and doesn't need any more of our money. <laughs> <laughs> Although I know sometimes Amazon's a little bit cheaper. We do what we can. So Judith, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really enjoyed the conversation and yeah, now I kind of want to go and see some trees. I think. I enjoyed our talk as well. I appreciate you having me on your program. And that's a wrap on episode 114 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you're a part of my YouTube audience. Now, you know what's coming. All the usual Sign up for my Patreon, share this with friends, family, coworkers, and on social media. Subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. You know the grind. But here's the thing. All of that is really important. Putting this podcast together takes a lot of time and effort. Right now, it's a labor of love. 
I'm in the process of making changes to improve the podcast and the YouTube channel. It's slow going, but your support will help me speed up the process and ensure that I can continue with the podcast and offer much more content than what I provide now. As I always like to say, I'm here in the front range now doing missionary work in regards to religion, spirituality, and ecology, psychedelics, and consciousness, and how all of this can help us heal humanity's relationship with the sacred earth. So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, and you know, I sure hope that you do, then please, by all means, help me in my efforts to share the good news. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to or watching Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.